opinions expressed by the program participants are their own and do not reflect those of Blue Line Futures LLC or their affiliates. The content is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as trading advice. Futures trading involves a substantial risk of loss and may not be suitable for all investors. Therefore, carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for your financial condition. Hi, welcome to episode eight of Macro Corner, proudly presented by Blue Line Futures. I am your host, Paul Wankmuller. The topic of today's podcast is the withdrawal of liquidity. The Macro Corner chart book is available in the description of the podcast on bluelinefutures.com, as well as attached to the email sent to clients. Not a client? Reach out to info at bluelinefutures.com for a free trial. My guest today is Giannis Mindall. Welcome to the show, Giannis. Hey, Paul. Thanks so much for having me back on the podcast. Uh, we will talk about the withdrawal of liquidity today, which I think is a really interesting topic, given that the Fed has been incrementally hawkish and looking forward to talk. Yeah, absolutely. Busy, busy week here in the markets. We have the Federal Reserve meeting on Wednesday of this week, so we will see. Uh, we know they're going to raise interest rates, but by how much this time? We've seen a couple surprises in the past. And I believe that it's possible to have a hundred basis point move uh, coming here. What what are the stats on on the percentages today for that? So a hundred basis points would definitely be a surprise. I think as of the last time that I looked at the probabilities, it was about seventy five percent ish. Okay, seventy five basis point hike. So. Anything above that would definitely be a surprise to the markets. But it's also about the four projections that they're going to um, talk about at the rhetoric during the press conference. I mean, as we've learned so, sort of over the recent past and years is that the press conference from Jay Powell will just be as important as the rate increase and the rate announcement itself. So right. there'll be a lot of uh, rhetoric that people will pay attention to. Right. And that is if he changes his wording, if he leaves some words out that he might have mentioned at previous meetings, that's what traders are going to be looking for to, to kind of gauge on where we're headed towards the end of the year, right? Exactly. I mean, this is sort of a, a quote that we brought up during our last podcast was Ben Bernanke saying that 90% of <laughs> uh, Fed policy and monetary policy is talking to rest the two percent or action so that just tells you how much uh, importance there is as far as talking and rhetoric goes so a lot of people definitely pay attention to the press conference just as much as the rate announcement absolutely absolutely all right well let's dive right in uh like i said the topic of today's podcast is the withdrawal of liquidity fun little quote here from aristotle knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom can't agree more with that one. So we have here on slide three, uh, again, in the accompanying chart book, that the jobless claims numbers, I see that there's two different types. You have initial and continued. Uh, what, what's the difference between the two? So initial jobless claims refer to new claimants for unemployment benefits and the continuing jobless claims are just people who are continuing to receive those unemployment benefits. Okay. So sort of one of the dynamics that we've been looking at in a recent past is at what pace will you see tighter monetary policy and also a little bit tighter fiscal policy follow mm -hmm. through into the uh, non-farm payrolls data into the jobless claims data. And we see that 
there are initial signs of jobless data picking up on the initial claim. So we sort of trough that above 150,000 jobless claims and right now that's closer to 250,000. Yeah, so that. we see that number take up, but we also know that jobs are ultimately a, la a lagging indicator as far as the economic state is concerned. I mean, why is that? Because if you are a business, then you'll sort of try mitigate the economic situation and you don't, the first action is not to lay off for everybody, but that's just a process that happens in the fullness of time. And even as we get to the other side of this, which I'm not saying we are in any stretch, but mm -hmm. as you get uh, to the other side of this, then even then businesses will continue to try to run leaner and basically run a tight organization as far as jobs go. I mean, there have been instances where engineers in Silicon Valley get paid as much as $400,000 a year on the entry level. And those and businesses who have to pay that much might not function quite as well on the economic side. And all these all these things are basically getting unwound as we speak. I see. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah, I, I can see there the, the divergence in these two numbers. It looks like, you know, as we mentioned before, it is a lagging indicator, but it looks like the initials uh, just from the chart kind of bottomed out around March and uh, the continuing claims are, are kind of in a flat line here. But uh, yeah, it, I do see a shift um, and in the current moments. And I believe the jobs are coming out on, on Thursday. Is that true? The jobs number? The, the travels claims numbers are coming out on Thursday. That is correct. Cool. All right. Well, that's another data point that we're going to be looking for. Uh, moving on to slide four and five. Now, this one is talking about QT. What, what is QT, Giannis? So we talked a lot about QE over the last two years. And right now, QE has sort of turned into QT. It stands for quantitative tightening, okay. which just means the Federal Reserve, Reserve is reversing what they did over the course of basically from the onset of the pandemic up until now, which mm -hmm. is they bought a lot of treasuries and a lot of mortgage-backed securities from banks and thereby induced liquidity into the system. Right now, they're reversing that process and basically sell these treasuries and mortgage-backed securities that are on the Fed balance sheet, and that ultimately puts increased supply pressures into these markets. So this is just the Fed reversing what they have done on the QE side, and that basically got started uh, on the back of the great financial crisis. That's really when they began QE. And then, of course, with COVID, you had that $3 trillion step up in, Q in QE, yeah. didn't call it QE initially, but then it sort of turned into this prolonged process of liquidity provision and assuring that the credit markets function properly. And they kept right. that going for what was arguably too long when you turn to inflationary dynamics right now. But yeah, QT just stands for quantitative tightening and it's the reversal of the liquidity provision that we've seen. And it's really interesting because it started on June first with 20, uh, 30 billion in treasuries rolling off every month right. and 15 billion dollars of mortgage-backed securities rolling off every month as of June 1st and those two numbers are set to double on September 1st I see and that that is an important thing to note the Federal Reserve providing liquidity and making sure that the economy functions and, and has a place to go and I I'm sure that there's still a lot of 2008. Um, hanging over in, in maybe some of the members of the Federal Reserve's mind. And COVID kind of came as a shock. Um, 
you know, maybe maybe they did a little too much. Maybe, you know, but who knew? You know, that, that was a that was an interesting time in history, I would say. Yes. I'm, I mean, this is sort of the discussion that we have in society and amongst economists as we speak is, OK, the initial uh, there's broad agreement that the initial response as far as assuring that the credit markets would work, assuring right. that companies could still uh, get access to credit, that that was necessary. But then the question turns into, OK, why did they keep it going for as long as they have? And that's sort of the main point of disagreement here. But yeah, as you said, I mean, there were a lot of people who still had that 2008 memory. And that that was why we saw an even more aggressive liquidity shock induced by the Fed uh, during the COVID, during the heights of the COVID lockdowns. And yeah. Right. What is what is RRP, Giannis? I, I, I see this in, in the top three things this week that uh, comes out every Sunday on bluelinefutures.com. Can, can you explain that for me? Yeah, so this is basically the reverse repo facility that we're talking about here, okay. uh, which is just an, a measure for money that the banks can't directly do stuff with. And that's why they put it into the reverse repo facility because that's where they can ultimately get uh, paid on those excess um, money that they have in, in, in the banks. So what we've seen going on with that number is that's basically gone up to $2.2 trillion, which is a lot of money. And a lot of people talk about that in terms of, okay, there's all this money sloshing around. And mm -hmm. that means that the liquidity conditions are still extremely, extremely uh, favorable. But that's actually not so because it really depends where the liquidity gets drained from in terms of, okay, is it deposits that the liquidity gets drained from or is it the reverse repo facilities that the liquidity comes out of and that ultimately determines some of the effects as far as risk assets go. But yeah, I mean, that's getting fairly technical. So <laughs> uh, I, 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 would, I, I would say it's just a measurement of money that the banks don't need right away. And that's why they put it into these facilities that got created by the, right. by the Fed. And yeah, I mean, the, these facilities stand at record highs right now, and it'll be interesting to follow how it's going to shake out over the course of this quantitative tightening cycle. Very good. Very good. All right, let's move on to slide six, the bond market volatility. Uh, volatility is related to the options markets, uh, not to dive into a little too deep, but from what I understand, this is basically a measure of um, standard deviation which will be the front the front month at the money straddle is kind of where I'm going with this one. Um, and this is just a gauge on how far prices are swinging back and forth. Would that be fair to say? Yes, exactly. I mean, this is looking at implied volatilities uh, of treasury options. So uh, this is just looking at a blend of treasury options across the, the treasury curve. And depending on how much the market moves, the move index also moves. Uh, okay. So if, if the volatility in the treasury market goes up, the move moves up. And if volatility is really contained, then the move index is naturally lower. Is it fair to say if this moved index increases, the market is less liquid? That is one way of looking at it. And that's actually a really interesting point of discussion. So 
one way I'm looking at the move index right now is, okay, as of Friday's close, we saw it move back into the 120 area and came mm -hmm. off from 156. And that might sort of give the Fed an assurance that liquidity conditions as a result of QT are not that bad just yet. And that, okay. that gives them room to keep tightening financial conditions. If the move index were to explode to the upside, as you can see on the chart, yeah. back in 2008, where basically credit markets and treasuries were in pandemonium, <laughs> uh, that, that, that would make the Fed a lot more concerned because if the treasury market doesn't function, that questions the very uh, ability by the treasury to service debt and ultimately have this um, have treasury securities represent a safe haven, which it's right. supposed to be. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, and it's, I guess that's psychological as well. I mean, if you don't believe that you can sell your treasuries at any time, or you think there might be, you know, I guess you can call it a credit freeze. I mean, we're theoretically, I mean, that, that's U.S. credit, right? It's the United States credit. It's the U.S. government. So uh, yeah. if if the the credit of the U.S. government is in question, there <laughs> are extremely large problems at hand. And this is also, as we move further into this tightening cycle, and when we ask ourselves where some of the um, breaking points are going to be in risk assets, then the treasury market is certainly one of the things to watch in terms of how much stretch there is. And that that then translates into how aggressive the Fed will be. Sure. And, I, and speaking of risk assets, moving on to slide seven, I see the five-year high-yield CDS. And again, that is that it, that are bonds that are people want a little more interest than the risk-free rate in order to take on that risk. I do see that it, it's moved from around 350 uh, near the beginning of the year up to around 550. But it looks like we've come off quite a bit. Uh, since the highs in June. Yes. Yeah, so we've seen highs closer to 600 basis points mm -hmm. in the high yield market. And that's come off to below 500 basis points as of Friday's close. So it's really interesting because if you if we think again of, okay, the Fed's tightening financial conditions that in turn impacts how much money companies can raise, especially on the high yield credit spectrum, where it's naturally harder for these companies to raise credit because the quality of these companies is, is lower than right. say investment grade. And if those conditions tighten, if say the credit spread were to blow out on the upside, that just means the Fed's current tightening cycle is turning into a combative action against companies and their ability to raise money on the credit market. So, this the credit spread is just a measurement of how much return um, investors in the high yield market demand right. for them to commit capital. And if that spread blows out, that means there's more stress. Companies are less able to raise credit. And that ultimately speaks to the financial stability aspect of things. If that number goes up, then the Fed will certainly pay attention. The fact that it's not at the local highs that we've seen near the 600 basis points might even embolden the Fed in taking more aggressive steps. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Again, this is just another barometer of, of where we are in the economy and how, you know, how the Fed is going to, you know, possibly pivot. You know, we don't, we're not really sure about what's going to happen on Wednesday, but 
looking at something like this and what investors demand out of those risk assets and riskier assets is 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 key to to all of this. Yes, I mean, uh, asking for a pivot on Wednesday is definitely a stretch. I don't think that's sure. going to happen at all, yeah. just because inflation is where it is, and even if it cools off, it's still going to be at elevated levels heading into year end and then into next year. But for sure, I mean, financial stability is definitely a consideration in the Fed's equation. And it's not as relevant right now because these spreads are not yet at levels that would be extremely concerning to the FOMC. But as these indicators move north and as financial conditions get tighter and tighter, the Fed will use that opportunity that they have right now to tighten these conditions. Because if they're low right now, why would they wait until in the future to tighten when these spreads are much wider. I'm not saying right. they will be because right. that all depends on how financial conditions get set by the Federal Reserve. But they, they don't want to wait for these spreads to blow out and get aggressive then. That's when the pivot might happen if right. these spreads are at levels where companies are no longer able to take on credit and borrow money from the market. Right, right. And, and speaking of spreads, we have on flight, slide eight, the U.S. yield curve, and this chart shows the difference between the two-year and the 10-year of the U.S. Treasury market. Let's go into that a little bit. I see that it's actually negative now. And what does that mean with regards to a recession or or possibly worse? Yeah, so the U.S. 2010s yield curve is the recession indicator out there. So this okay. is the indicator that everybody watches when it comes to the health of the U.S. economy. So what this reflects is the fact that it's at negative 25 basis points-ish right now just means that in the short run, so this is the two-year treasury yield right. minus the 10-year treasury um, yield. Right. Oh, uh, the other way around. The 10-year <laughs> treasury yield minus the two-year treasury yield. Uh, and what this just means is if that number is negative, the two-year treasury yield is above the 10-year treasury yield. Right. This is reflective of high inflation expectations in the near future, the two years, and low economic growth in the out years, which is reflected by a 10-year yield. So as that no number is negative, that just reflects market expectations that the U.S. economy will not be in a good shape. And that's ultimately why so many investors pay attention to this. And even as the Fed is trying to talk down the signaling function of the U.S. yield curve, this is extremely critical. And another thing that we need to be extremely aware of is we saw that initial inversion at the end of March, beginning of April, mm -hmm. which was basically the Fed hike um, was in the initial stretch of the hiking cycle. It had already inverted at that point. And yeah. right now it's inverted again. Usually the inversion happens only when they get further into the hiking cycle. So you might have expected that inversion to happen now, as opposed to already seeing it back then in um, March and April. And so this is just another interesting uh, market expectation pricing that we're seeing right now with the yield curve. And it just tells us investors are concerned about the future state of the U.S. economy. And that's why it's inverted. 
Oh, what does this mean for banks? Um, you know, if, if I'm a bank, what does this mean for me and my business uh, going forward? Yeah. So if you're a bank, you borrow money from the Fed uh, right. on the short end and you yep. lend it out on the long end. So if this number is negative, that means that it's sort of a losing proposition for a bank that lends money to uh, consumers. And right. this ultimately also impacts how much credit they are willing to provide into the economy because if you lend in the short run and you basically make a loss on that spread, then it's not nearly as attractive to you. And that impacts, of course, how much credit there is available in the U.S. economy. So that's what it means for banks. And that's also why the Fed, I mean, they do pay attention. They just want to stay focused on combating inflation. And that's why they are providing a sort of rhetoric where they're not what they're telling us, but they're not paying as much attention to the yield curve and that the signaling function of the yield curve might not be as it used, as we have gotten used to with that recessionary indicator. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, this is extremely relevant. There's no way to deny it. Right. And this, this is, would you call this a leading indicator or a lagging indicator? This is a leading indicator. So what we see is that we first get the inversion if the recession happens thereafter. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thank you for that. We will be paying paying attention to that as well as the jobs, which we mentioned was a lagging indicator. Moving on to slide nine and slide 10. I see here that we have some currencies. Um, What does this mean with regards to the U.S.? Um, We have the Japanese yen here. We have the Chinese yuan. Let's, uh, Let's talk about that. Yeah, so we have on slide number nine, we have the Korean won. We have the Japanese yen, again, both against the dollar. And then on slide 10, we have the Singapore dollar versus the dollar and the Chinese yuan against the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. So what we're basically looking at here is you have cyclically export-dependent commodities, uh, uh, cur- currencies, excuse me, currencies like the Korean won and the Japanese yen. I mean, when you think of these economies, you think in the case of South Korea, of companies like Samsung Mm -hmm. exporting chips, exporting TVs, all sorts of electronics. In the case of Japan, you think of things like Toyota cars and electronics also, and maybe trains, those sorts of exports that are ultimately dependent on the shape of the global economy. So if these currencies weaken, it just means that there are less flows into the currency than there are out of the currency relative to the U.S. dollar. So the fact that these, com- uh, that these currencies have weakened to the degree that they have is just a reflection of the fact that the global economy has gotten much weaker and that the demand for the products that these nations produce is not as high as it used to be. So this is why this is ultimately really interesting and a direct reflection of the global economic activity. So this is the case for Japan. This is the case for South Korea. This is the case for Singapore, which is, of course, well known for being a major export and port hub Uh in the case of Singapore, that is. And then it will be interesting to see what's going to happen with Chinese yuan. I mean, this has been the currency has weakened. But then also China on the manufacturing side is competing against countries like Korea and Japan. So if they sort of want to keep up with being competitive on the export side, 
they might ultimately revert to interventionism and possibly some sort of currency uh, intervention that they might deploy if they see that there are competing currencies that are more attractive for overseas demand than their own. I wanted to add one of South Korea's uh, best exports. I know you're a huge fan, Giannis. BTS and K-pop. Can't forget about that. <laughs> and yeah, was... you just revealed all my music taste. But... <laughs> yeah. No, that's great stuff. And I, I just wanted to close it back out again, you know, talking about the relationship between QT and where liquidity could come out of, you know, under different regimes. And, you know, are there, you know, like we were talking earlier, how the United States Federal Reserve and the Treasury market it's one of the largest liquidity providers in the world. Is there is there anyone else that can that can provide liquidity like they can if you know if anything happened or how how would that work out? So of course there is a certain degree of central bank college coordination because uh-huh. if there is one central bank that's extremely out of whack with everybody else, then that causes distortions. Then right. the counterpoint to that is you have the BOJ basically buying unlimited amounts of 10-year Japanese bonds uh, because they do not want to allow their enormous debt burden to lead to enormous interest outlays by the Japanese government. So, of course, you have liquidity providers such as the BOJ, the BOE, the ECB, and right. also the Fed, but it really matters which of these central banks is sort of leading the charge. And if sort of one central bank is extremely easy and one central bank is extremely tight, and then that then that leads to interest rate differentials, which leads to currency fluctuations. So it's really because the US dollar is the reserve currency. It's mm-hmm. the Fed that really sets the precedent for interest rate moves and liquidity conditions globally. But of course, we have talked about policy divergences between the People's Bank of China and the right. Fed in the past. So, yeah. of course, there's not always movement happening in lockstep, but it is the Fed that's basically setting the tone for what is, quote unquote, allowed in the global currents, uh, central bank context. Right. I think you were talking um, a little bit about the ECB and you know their rhetoric afterwards from Christine Lagarde uh, introducing a fragmentation tool. And, yes, exactly. and that, that was, you know, like you said, they, you know, 50 basis point hike, but the rhetoric afterwards changed a little bit and it, that's what, that's what made markets move. Yeah. It, it was that hawkish 50 basis point hike yeah. to an ECB rate that's now standing at zero. I mean, <laughs> we hiked rates to zero in the Eurozone <laughs> and, then you, of course, had that hawkish hike, but but on the other hand, that fragmentation tool that they introduced, which basically gives them authority to buy bonds in the eurozone of countries that they deem to be to be needing of, of support. So you might have, if they are not satisfied with their uh, interest rate policy transmission, say right. the German bond yields respond much different to what the Italian 10-year bond yields might respond. If -hmm. there is a difference that they're not satisfied with, they could step in and therefore suppress that spread between the 10-year Italians and the bonds. 
So this is, yeah, we are definitely living in interesting times. And particularly when it comes to the ECB, you, of course, have a whole lot of different countries. And all these countries have different economic dynamics going on. Each of these countries have different fiscal dynamics going on. But yet you have a central uh, monetary authority that manages interest rates for all of them. So this is extremely tricky for them. And we'll see how it ultimately shakes out. There have been discussions around the euro bond, but we can get into that at some other point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have a lot to look forward to. Wednesday, Jay Powell and the Fed crew are going to be giving us um, some great rhetoric afterwards, and we will we will know how, how high they're going to they're going to hike. Giannis Mindall, thank you so much for joining me today on the Macro Corner podcast. Proudly presented by Blue Line Futures. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Don't forget, listeners, the Macro Corner chart book is available in the description of the podcast on bluelinefutures.com, as well as attached to the email sent to clients every Sunday. Not a client? Reach out to info at bluelinefutures.com for a free trial. Thank you, everybody. Informational we'll purposes you. only and should not be taken as trading advice. Futures trading involves a substantial risk of loss and may not be suitable for all investors. Therefore, carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for your financial condition.